Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Sellen. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. And from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey. We have got the latest earnings from healthcare, airlines, restaurants, and more. We will dip into the full mailbag, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with Blizzard 2016. <laughs> oh. Yes, with the storm poised to cause problems from Washington, D.C. to New York City and all points in between. Let's look at this storm through the lens of investing. And, Maddie, I'll just start with you as a, as a Massachusetts native. You're. you're you got no problem dealing with the snow, but let's face it, there are businesses out there that are going to have problems. And I'm curious when you look at this and you think, okay, who's going to benefit? Who's going to be hurt by this? Well, my Sunday's set because I'm I'm watching the game, of course. <laughs> uh, no, but there there is. I mean, there you know, if you're a restaurant, you know, a business, and you and you have a substantial amount of real estate, restaurant real estate on the on the East Coast, you're you're hurting this weekend because that's those are big revenue days that you're going to lose. Uh, and so, any kind of establishment where it's a service establishment or a retail establishment where people are, you're used to having customer traffic, uh, particularly on the weekends, you're especially hurt. Jeff. Some that benefited included, of course, grocery retailers, hardware stores. Uh, my wife was at one this morning and said they were sold out of sleds. People <laughs> were lined up at six in, in the morning to get the sled uh, delivery. Believe nice. it or not, <laughs> nice. Uh, one company I know will benefit is O'Reilly Automotive. They benefit whenever there's extreme weather, one way or another. Uh, you know, a snowstorm, more parts on your car will break, and then you end up at the at the auto parts store. Yeah, we saw this last year with uh, companies like AutoZone and Advanced Auto Parts, that sort of thing. What do you think, Jason? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what Maddie said there in regard to restaurants that makes a lot of sense. I mean, those are sales they're not going to recoup. You know, I'm not going to go to Starbucks and buy five more coffees uh, on Monday because I missed my chance on Saturday and Sunday. Oh, no, why not? I guess it's probably a bad example because I've got like five bags of Starbucks beans in the house already. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I you know Jeff mentioned hardware hardware stores. I mean, I like the Home Depots and the Lowe's when it comes to these uh, types of events because. These are stores that really benefit in warm and cold weather, right? I mean, hey, if you need salt for your driveway or a shovel, you can get it there. And man, you know what? If spring's here and you need flowers to plant in the in the flower bed, well, you can get them there too. So those are stores that I think really benefit regardless of the weather. And I think the stores that have been having a lot of trouble going into sort of this season here, it, it's it's not going to be as viable an excuse because they've already been having trouble. And let's face it, some companies. I mean, we're going to talk about this earnings season in a second, but next earnings season, you know, Maddie, there are companies that are going to use this as an excuse, <laughs> and it won't be legit. Uh, it, it, it always is. I mean, you'll, you'll have semiconductor companies come out and say, "Oh, well, the weather was really bad; we missed revenue." Uh, you know, it's it, it always it's, it's, it just drives us crazy, but it happens all the time. Of course, we'd be remiss. We're going to talk about this company later, but I have to say, there's going to be a lot of binge TV watching this weekend. Sure. So, of course. Netflix is going to be a big beneficiary, and I'd say another one: Activision Blizzard. A lot of video gaming uh, online as well this weekend. So yeah, even Google maybe on some small scale. You're sure. bored. You Google something. YouTube. Yeah. All right. Let's get to this earnings season. Fourth quarter profits for American Express fell 38 percent, 
And that, plus some dismal guidance for 2016, sent shares of Amex down more than 10% on Friday. Jason, that is a big move for a company like this. It's a very big move for a company like this. And I'd like to say there's some silver lining to all of this, but I mean, maybe there really is. But you're not you know, going to. I'm not going that far, Chris. <laughs> I think uh, it was just maybe a few Market Foolery episodes ago, or I came out a little bit down on, on American Express and sort of what they've got to look forward to. Now, as a cardholder, I love American Express, but as an investor, I don't think I really would. I mean, it's a fundamentally different story now going forward because the business was founded on the idea that wealthier cardholders are going to spend more money and they could therefore charge merchants more for uh, you know those transactions. And that's just not the case now. I mean, there there are more cards out there than ever before, uh, offering more deals, better rates, sort of better incentives there. American Express certainly has to compete with them. And then further, you know, this has become sort of a political issue there in the interchange fees and what these card companies can charge. So I think as time goes on and we see more and more people using these cards, they become more and more like a utility. And I think that really caps sort of the problem Profitability side of of card of card processors like American Express, like Visa, like Mastercard. At least Visa and Mastercard were, were sort of already founded on the notion of, of you know catering to the masses. But but I think it definitely raises questions to to sort of the the greater payer, uh, you know, the card companies in general, kind of what their future may look like. Yeah, I will say there used to be some cachet to pulling out your American Express card, and with mobile payments or digital payments occurring, that no longer matters at all. Uh, so the only the only avenue they can really win at right now, since brand is not as important, are services, uh, cash rebates, those such things. But uh, as Jason said, all the others are offering that as well. So competition is really heated up. Yeah, and I'd say I mean you can tell from the release. I mean they are in full blown cost cutting mode now. So identifying growth on the horizon is really difficult to do. And for for investors out there who are kind of thinking, hey, maybe this is a value right now for a really quality business. It's at a three year low. It is, and and I would just encourage you to try to identify the catalyst that actually turns the story around because management couldn't seem to identify it, and I can't really seem to identify it either. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but before you invest in this thing, thinking it's a great value, just be careful you're not getting into a value trap. That's a good point, Jason. Management doesn't seem to to have a view into how they grow again. But that said, I still own shares. I'm keeping them for now. Uh, the company still generates a huge amount of free cash flow and income and and revenue even. And it wasn't all all darkness. It's you know some areas of the business are still growing. That said, will Warren Buffett trim his stake? Will he sell his shares? Who? Yeah, this I, is one I of will Buff- be watching that. This is one of Buff- Buffett's favorite stocks. Well, you know who else just sold shares? I mean, we were talking about this before taping. Our man behind the glass. Steve Broido selling out of Amex? I'm we'll ask him about that later in the show. He can't say anything Just about saying. that. <laughs> Starbucks' first quarter profits came in higher than expected, but sales in China were a little light, and that was enough to spook at least a few investors to have shares of Starbucks falling on Friday, Jeff. A little bit, Chris, and yet. Uh, Howard Schultz is still very bullish on China. It was actually really encouraging to read his statements. He claims he may be the CEO who has traveled to China <laughs> more than any other CEO, American CEO, over the last ten years. Now it is just conjecture on his part. What does he get? Like a like a, a championship <laughs> belt for that? He got a pin, he got a lapel. On his head. So he says he has a unique perspective to sh- to share, and he really believes that China can increase double. Per capita income by 2020 from 2020 or 2010's level, so in about 11 years, double per capita income, and have 600 million Chinese people uh, that are in middle income uh, 
consumers. So he is a strong believer in China. And overall, Starbucks did really well. 8%, 9% same store sales growth, record traffic internationally and in the US, digital payments, food sales taking off. As we've talked about here, Chris, the last couple of years, if they can get food right, that's really going to drive increased ticket sales, and it's happening. So, they're doing very well overall. That said, the stock is priced that way, too, at 30 times earnings. Uh, you know, I poke a little fun at Howard Schultz. It was eight years ago this month that he returned as CEO to Starbucks and shares up nearly 500% oh. since he came back as CEO. So, Bravo. You know what? He earned that championship. Did belt. you see the pictures <laughs> of the Starbucks they just opened in Kazakhstan? It was in Almaty, I believe. Uh, just pictures in the opening day. Place was a madhouse. I mean, that that is a brand that I think really is just translating globally far better than so many people anticipated. Yeah, really. They really understand brand and product, both in their stores and outside their stores. Their consumer packaged goods as well. And uh, one more thing he said about China, which I thought was encouraging. If he's right, and he's a smart guy. He's gotten some things right. <laughs> Well, he's traveled there more than any other CEO, so I'm, I'm sure he's right. On he might be more. Too. He might be more Chinese at this point. Then, <laughs> so he said, the buffeting of the Chinese economy, as it is happening right now, is a necessary part for it to move on to its next stage of growth. He really believes that there's another stage after this, and this is a natural kind of cycle. General Electric's core business did well in the fourth quarter, but they've also got some divisions that cater to the oil and gas industry, Maddie, and uh, that's not going as well. No, not not at all. It's really hard to gauge GE's performance right now. I mean, because the, the company's going through so many changes. You know, they they're they're shedding all their financial units. They're in the process of selling their appliance unit. Uh, they're moving to Boston, which I, I support that move. But, <laughs> uh, but it's it's hard. GE's I don't I wouldn't say it's not really the economic bellwether it used to be. It's much more about energy and aviation today. Um, and in fact, they've made a, a huge investment in the energy space in recent years. And of course, we know that that didn't turn out so well starting this year. So, their oil and gas unit, their revenue there fell 16%, um, really offset everything good that was happening in the rest of the business. Um, and, and the guidance for 2016 looks, you know, they got a slight pickup in overall revenue, but pretty much flat earnings. Um, I really, it's hard to get excited about GE, especially with the, the heavy oil and gas bets, which I, I just don't see having any kind of resurgence, resurgence in 2016. So, Matt, you're not a buyer of GE. I'm not. I, I can't be. I, I would never probably be a buyer of GE, but I <laughs> certainly can't be right now. Shares of Netflix falling this week, despite fourth quarter profits coming in higher than expected. And Jason, to pivot off what Jeff was saying with regards to Starbucks and how its stock price is valued, I'm wondering if part of this is. Netflix is a pretty richly valued stock. Um, yeah, I mean, it's richly valued. I think that one of the concerns maybe is that domestic growth here is starting to slow down a little bit, which is understandable. I mean, you saturate a market at some point, uh, and, and certainly global growth is still is still there. But but I think a lot of those assumptions probably have been brought forward to the stock uh, stock price today, which is why it, it's valued the way it is. But I mean, let's be very clear: this is a wonderful business that's doing a lot of great things, and Reed Hastings has really, uh, to my mind, done a phenomenal job pivoting from essentially saying we're going to take this one country at a time to basically just rolling it out in the entire world. I mean, that was a 180 degree turn there, and they've done it quite well, I think. Revenue is up 28%, and in the face of that, I mean, streaming content obligations are only up 15%. So, as long as they keep growing sales more than they grow those, those streaming content obligations, I mean, everything's hunky-dory, right? Uh, domestic subs are slowing down, but international net ads are up 66%. And, and I think, really, at the end of the day, we always talk about the original content for Netflix. I mean, essentially trying to become more like an HBO, and they're, they're doing that. Uh, they're going to focus on 600 hours of that original content this year versus 450 hours last 
last year. Now, it's going to cost them a lot of money. They're going to probably have to take out some more debt here at some point. And I don't think that really changes for them anytime in the near future. It just costs a lot of money to feed this beast. But it's working as people sign up. You know, it's, it's a pretty easy expense to cover every month. And I, and I anticipate that it will continue to roll out across the world and, and uh, do well. As people hunker down for the storm, not just this storm, because let's face it, there'll be other storms this winter. What's one TV show or movie you would recommend? Hmm. You know, I just recently started watching Showtime's Billions, and it's only two episodes in, and it's a little bit over the top, but it's sort of that Wall Street uh, vibe there. It's an interesting show, two, two shows in. I'm going to give it a chance. It's probably worth a look if you have Showtime. Jeff? You know, a kind of slow moving, creepy, but well acted. Uh, series was Bloodline on Netflix, set in Key West. So if you're in the middle of a blizzard, a blizzard, head to the Keys. That's right. You, I, uh, other ne- another Netflix show. My wife and I just finished watching Jessica Jones, which I wasn't excited about. I mean, I, I, the whole superhero stuff is. I'm getting a little tired of it right now. But the, that was a really well done first season for Jessica Jones. I highly recommend it. Coming up, sure, we're paying less at the pump these days, but which companies are also benefiting from the low price of gas? Details next. This is Motley Fool Money. Let's kick it! There's a blizzard coming on, how I'm wishing I was home. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Jeff Fisher. Southwest Airlines putting up record fourth quarter profits, and Jeff, they're doing well on the operations side, but the low price of gas sure doesn't hurt. Low fuel costs certainly helped, even though Southwest hedges out some of the risk of fuel. But it's interesting, their hedge strategy going forward is they called it more conservative, and I take that to mean they're not going to hedge out much. They're not too worried about energy uh, the next couple of years. But they had a capacity growth last year of about 7%, and traffic grew even more. It grew nearly 9%. You have a decent economy, you have more people looking to fly, and you have Southwest, you have fares holding up well. So the industry as a whole is expected to have record profits last year and possibly this year too. Big blue shareholders seeing red these days. IBM's revenue fell for the 15th quarter in a row. And I'm not an expert, Maddie, but that seems like a trend. It, it is very <laughs> much a trend, and I don't see it turning anytime soon, Chris. I mean, IBM, like GE, IBM's sort of in this big transition. They're going from you know low, low margin hardware products to these higher margin services. So CEO Ginny Rometty, she says she calls it. IBM's transition to a cognitive cognitive solutions and cloud platform company. That's like perfect IBM speak. Uh, but my thing is with with companies like this, IBM, Oracle, Microsoft, GE, even GE to a certain extent, I, they're in this transition. In a way, it, it tells me that they either miss some some markets trying to play catch up, or they made some bad investments in the past. And I, I think that's the case with IBM. Um, I would just avoid companies like this that are in these restructurings and undergoing big changes. Well, I would throw Intel in there too. Intel I mean, we, we, we've talked about Intel recently, as and it, in some ways, it's almost like these companies are in a race. It's essentially how quickly can we innovate on this smaller thing that isn't making us as much money right now. And it's it's like a corporate game of beat the clock. Like we just got to get this ramped up as quickly as possible because we're losing on the other side. Right. And I just it's hard to see who comes out of this ahead in any way. And I, I think there's so much value for 
look, focusing as investors on companies that do one thing really, really well. Mm-hmm. Netflix streams movies really well. Chipotle makes good, well, mostly healthy burritos. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just one, doing one thing very, very well. And I just, IBM is kind of all over the place. Yeah, right Hewlett now. Packard, same thing. And then you have IBM. We considered shorting IBM in Motley Fool Pro around $200 per share and didn't largely because Buffett was buying. So Buffett has cost me some money. Oh, man, you don't hear that very often. Damn you, Warren. <laughs> Shares of United Health Group up this week after fourth quarter revenue came nor- came in north of forty three and a half billion dollars. Jason, uh, profits also higher than expected. Yeah, these guys throw around numbers that just make you kind of wonder: did, did numbers really go that high? And just health insurance is one of those political hot potatoes that just uh, everybody seems to have an opinion and nobody seems to quite be able to get it right. But it seems like United Healthcare is uh, one of those in the in the health space that is worth owning. I think that uh, stronger growth in the optum side of the business is what is really encouraging. Focus on health services side versus the insurance side, and that's really the faster of the, of the two, faster growing of the two segments of the business. Uh, they're serving you know 129 million people now versus 88 and a half million a year ago. Uh, the fact that they're able to grow so uh, quickly on the optum side gives them more ability to control costs on that side to to you know contain any you know forgive the pun hemorrhaging on the the insurance side. Uh, it, Shareholders certainly have won with this one over the past five years. It's handily outperformed the market. And when we look at the health space, we tend to really look at these these big dogs first. And and they're not not many bigger than, than United Healthcare. Next week, consumers in Japan will be able to sample the latest creative food offering from McDonald's, the McChaco Potato. <laughs> yes, the company says its famous French fries are getting the ultimate chocolate makeover. The McChaco potato comes with two types of chocolate sauce, regular and white, drizzled over the fries for a salty-sweet combo that you will not find anywhere else. I'm not sure you would want to. Uh, who's in on this? <laughs> what I mean, took we're not them so long? Gosh. I mean, come on. This has a 1980s written all over it. Jeff's a fan. I've got a tremendous salt tooth. I mean, the, the sweet tooth I can, you know... Do with or without, but man, I feel like they've just ruined a really good thing. Yeah, I don't know. Do, do potatoes and chocolate even go together? There's only one way to find out. <laughs> They're like chocolate-covered potato chips, yeah. I think. So I've never tried them. Uh, oh, those uh, those can be pretty good. Yeah. I've tried those like before. Caramel goes well with. Salt, you need it crisp though. If it's crispy, then it's I'm good. Sure. The right. Chocolate and the chip, but with kind of soggy fries. Well, it's not just it, to me. It's not just a salt and sugar combination, which can be very good. I mean, think of caramel popcorn, <laughs> but it's like salt, sugar, and grease combination. Which <laughs> I just doesn't. It doesn't. Seem Sound like a good mix to me. I just uh. let's let's bring in our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Steve, uh, you interested in this? You going to give it a shot? You think? Absolutely. Chocolate and salt do make a very good partnership. But what about? Uh, I think Maddie's on to something with the with the grease factor there. I don't know what to tell you about. That. <laughs> <laughs> he may be right. You're saying if your beloved Olive Garden offered something along these lines, you're going to give it a you're going to take a shot at it. Give it the old college try. Chocolate sure. covered breadsticks. I mm. we'll find out next week. Uh, here, dessert menu. Here's the thing with McDonald's. We know we'll know if this works <laughs> if they bring it to the United States. There they're going to test it in Japan. If it works, they're going to bring it here. All right, Jeff Fisher, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, guys, we will see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, a conversation with columnist Morgan Housel. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio now, the one and only Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here. It's the least I could do. I appreciate that because I feel like your particular brand of insight and expertise is needed more than it usually is. 
when you consider that in the past month, we've seen the S&P 500 drop more than 7%, yeah. the Dow Jones Industrial Average drop more than 8%, and the NASDAQ dropped nearly 10%. Yeah. Small cap stocks are down 25% since, since July. The full-on bear market in small caps. You're a cool customer. Please tell me you're at least mildly freaked out by this. Freaked out is probably freaked too strong. Freaked out, no. no. Well, look, as much as I you know, try to study the history of the market and market declines and preach about how common they are and you should take the long view, which is absolutely the right advice, you know, as much as I say that, do I appreciate logging into my brokerage account and seeing it down 10%? No. Nobody does. And I think that's important to admit to yourself that even if you are a long-term investor and you, there's no way you're going to sell, if maybe, if anything, you're looking at this as a buying opportunity, it's okay to admit to yourself that you don't enjoy this. That's okay. I, I think there's too much in the media sometime of, oh, we love downturns because we're gonna. It's a great opportunity, and we love this. Why is everyone upset? This is great. Sometimes I think that's a little. That goes a little too far. It's, it's fine to admit that you're a human being with emotions, and you don't like seeing 10% of your net worth disappear. That's fine. That being said, for investors who are looking at this downturn and thinking, you know what, some of these stocks. The business hasn't really changed right. all that much in the yeah. past month. I think I'm going to do a little shopping. And that's that. You know, there there are two right ways to respond to a bear market. Only two ways. One is uh, ambivalence and just eh, this is this is what's going on, but I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'm going to go to the beach with my kids. The second is to look at it and say this is an opportunity. I'm going to buy a little bit more than I otherwise would. Those those are the two responses that you should have. And, and, and either one is fine. It's fine to do nothing. Most people will and should do nothing. But if you're going to do something, it's looking for opportunity. I feel like for all the talking we do about Warren Buffett, when you just mentioned one response is ambivalence, that seems like it's right up the alley of his right-hand man, Charlie Munger. Yeah. He seems like a guy who's just like, yeah, whatever. This is, this is what it is. Yeah. I think he said before uh, he made most of his fortune sitting on his ass. <laughs> yeah. Buy great companies As, and just sit back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had written something recently uh, that gave me a little bit of pause, which was you wrote uh, in relation to investors, some of you must fail. Yeah. And you were very quick to point out, not that some of you might fail. Must. Must. Right. Why? Well, the reason that the stock market provides good long-term returns is because it is volatile in the short run. That's the cost you have to pay. That's why it provides higher returns than a bank account or bonds, is because it's wild in the short run, up and down and up and down. Well, what, what makes the market go down? What is causing that volatility that, uh, the volatility that creates good long-term returns? It's people freaking out and selling. And if nobody ever panicked, the market would never fall. And if the market never fell, it would just get really expensive. And if it got really expensive, it wouldn't offer good returns. And if it didn't offer good returns, people would panic. And it's this thing where the market has to be volatile. That's what a market is. And volatility is just a reflection in real time of people panicking. So it is an, it's not only inevitable, but a necessary feature of markets that some people will fail. And by fail, I mean selling at the bottom. Because the reason the market is going down is because people are selling. And that hopefully that's not you or me or any of our listeners. But someone in the market, who, does, who, who knows who it is, someone is going to have to have a bad time. You know what's far less expensive than it used to be is the price of oil. 
which continues to fall to the point where it is at its lowest level since 2003. You know, oil is 25% cheaper today than it was in 1990. Do you remember 1990? Uh, I bet we have people who work at this company who were not born in 1990. Oh, That's I'm, almost certainly true. I'm, I'm, Austin, the guy behind the glass, not born in 1990. <laughs> How are we supposed to look at declining oil prices? Because it it seems like one of those things that for some investors who maybe don't have any exposure directly to oil stocks, they think, well, that that doesn't really affect me. And yet, it is one of the most frequent headlines and certainly one of the biggest business stories of the last, I'm going to say, 18 months. Yeah. If oil is your business, this is one of the worst things that might ever happen in your career. This is bigger than 2008 if oil is your business. But oil is not most people's business. And what most people's businesses, or one of their biggest expenses, I should say, is buying gas and buying heating oil in the winter. And you know, something like this clearly benefits them. I think when you look at the price of oil plunging, you have to keep one thing in mind. There are two reasons that oil or any commodity or stock or whatever will fall in price, either because you have too much supply or not enough demand. In 2008, when oil was plunging, it fell from $140 a barrel to $30 a barrel in 2008-2009. That was clearly because of a lack of demand, because the global economy ground to a halt. So, oil's decline was indicative of massed economic doom. So, that was, so back then, you could look at the decline in oil and say, this is, this is not a good thing we're looking at. Today, overwhelmingly, not entirely, but overwhelmingly, the reason oil is plunging is because we have too much supply. Because U.S. oil producers in Texas and North Dakota have just exploded their supply over the last five years because sanctions in Iran have come off because OPEC and mostly Saudi Arabia just keeps pumping and pumping full bore. You add all that up and we just have too much oil sloshing around in the world. But it's not necessarily indicative of global demand, like the entire global economy is slowing down as it was in 2008. China's economy is definitely slowing down, but most of the world is kind of chugging along right now. So if people look at the price of oil and say, what's going on? Is this indicative of you know, a coming recession? I doubt it. It's, most of the world is doing pretty okay right now. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with columnist Morgan Housel. Let's get to some of the headlines that we've been seeing recently. You just sort of touched on this. We talked on last week's show about the hysteria in the media, and and I don't think hysteria is is too far off the mark when I use that word because yeah. I I know they're trying to get someone to buy a magazine or a newspaper or click on a link. But some of the headlines over the past few weeks, just you know, when you see things like sell everything and yeah, and even one one of our listeners had written in. Uh, uh, a headline that he saw that he wanted me to flag for you, which is, the stock market hates the eighth year of an American presidency. Well, I mean, it, it seems like it's a bull market for people who want to prognosticate that everything's going to hell. It's a bull market for something else that starts with B and ends <laughs> ends with S. But yeah, I mean, as someone who consumes a lot of financial news, I guess I'm kind of immune to it. Because if, if, you, if you follow enough headlines and pay attention to the subsequent outcomes connected to those, you, you, you really realize that headline writing and a lot of financial media in general is, is not connected to reality and is definitely not something that should you should read a headline and then log into your brokerage account and act on it. That's really dangerous. Most financial journalism is a form of entertainment. 
And it's important for readers to know that. A lot of times the journalist thinks you understand that. But a lot of readers don't understand that, that it is really a form of intellectual entertainment. So who are a couple of the people that you like to read, thoughtful, engaging, and help to give you perspective and balance, particularly, as I said at the top, when the market is having the kind of volatility that we've seen over the last few weeks? Some of the people that I follow on on Twitter and are and are friends of mine, but mainly Twitter is where you can see their their content in action. Uh, there's a, there's an investor named uh, Ben Carlson, uh, often confused with Ben Carson. I was going to say different person. Okay, not running He's, for president right now. He is entirely sick of that comparison, <laughs> but I, I just did it again. Ben Carlson with an L. He, he's one of the smartest investors I think I've ever come across. And he's just a really nice guy too. He's a, he's on Twitter. He runs a blog called A Wealth of Common Sense. He also wrote a book by the same title, and he's just uh, I would just describe him as hyper rational, but also very bright. So he's a great guy to follow. There's another guy I follow on on Twitter named Michael Batnick. Uh, he writes a blog called The Irrelevant Investor. He too is just a great guy. He provides a lot of market history and psychology in just really quick, short investment takes that you can read in one minute, but provide a lot of insight about what's going on. And he, too, is just a very rational person. These are not people that are going to get excited with big headlines or freak out. They're really people that put the market into proper perspective and help you get a proper mental mind frame. One of the things that you do in your writing is frame, or in some cases, reframe a way of thinking. Because, again, a lot of the headlines are, are framed a certain way, and I find that uh, one of the reasons I enjoy following you on Twitter is because you will reframe things. And you had written something recently about about uh, what the market decline means in terms of your four hundred one k plan. Yeah. I had never really thought about it in that yeah. sense. That like, oh, my my contribution that I make every month is actually doing a little bit more heavy lifting. Right, because the market fell over the last week, your next 401k contribution will you will acquire more shares in that contribution because shares are cheaper now. So I think if you said if rather than you said uh, the stock market fell 3% today. If you reframe that and say um, your next 401k contribution you will acquire 2 or 3% more shares than you would have yesterday. Both of those statements are true, but I think the second one is a better context for what most investors are after, which is not current returns, but future wealth accumulation. Those more shares that you acquire today because the market fell over the last two or three weeks is going to pay off, likely will pay off down the road between now and whenever your goal is, if your goal is retirement or whatnot down the road. It's hard for people to think of that because when they see a lot of red lights flashing and blaring headlines, and watching their net worth decline by 10%, it's easy to just take the automatic pessimistic view of stocks fell 3%. But if you think of it as, uh, you know, you're, you can now acquire more shares. And most people do sort of dollar cost average in their 401k. They're just making purchases automatically every, each two weeks, each paycheck. Those people absolutely benefit from things like this. It's just hard to wrap your mind around that. You can follow him on Twitter. You can read his stuff. See, this is why I love having you on the show. I always feel better when we have conversations like this. So, Morgan Housel, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. The small bird sings a song he always sings And speaks to me of flowers that will bloom again in spring
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Jeff Fisher. Guys, a couple of housekeeping notes before we get to the stocks on our radar this week. Happy to say that for the third week in a row, I think this is a record, third week in a row on Motley Fool Money, we get to welcome a new station. It's uh, right, KITZ right. AM fourteen hundred, serving the Puget Sound region in Washington State. So, uh, nice. so any, of our, buddy any of our folks in the Seattle area, pressure's check it out. on now. I want I want four weeks in a row. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> um, Manny Argusinger, we talked about this recently. One of the services you work on, our Supernova service, it's one of our services here at the Motley Fool that's open just for a limited time uh, for folks unfamiliar. This is a service. By the way, we talked recently about the market volatility. You go back to when Supernova launched four years ago. The market was kind. Of, it was launching at a time kind of like what we're seeing right now. I remember those days very well. We we came out of the gate in March 2012 with the Odyssey One mission, which is the portfolio um, I'm in charge of. And it, it, same thing. The market was very volatile. A lot of our early recommendations were were just all over the map. I mean, some you know we we I, I remember specifically buying Netflix for example really really early on. It was down 20 percent within a month. Uh, just uh, that's always a good feeling. Oh yes, it hurt. <laughs> Uh, but I see the same thing happening right now. We're launching Supernova, and uh, we're also launching a new mission, Odyssey 2, which really follows in the footsteps of the portfolio I'm running. It's, it's has kind of the same charter, the same goals, uh, really investing in some of the best uh, stocks from Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor and building uh, real money portfolios. And uh, that team, it's David Kretzman. He has a great team. Brendan Matthews is also on the team, a great analyst we have here. Uh, and they're picking stocks in an environment I'd love to be picking stocks in because I think there are so many bargains all over the stock market, but especially in the, uh, the Supernova universe. And if you join now, you can you kind of see their first three picks uh, right off the bat this uh, this coming week. So, so for more details, go to supernovaradio.fool.com. That's supernovaradio.com. Fool.com. It's a free microsite with a lot more information on the service, including videos with Matt Argusinger, David Gardner, David Kretzman, and others. Radio at Fool.com is our email address. Question from Jay Wozniak, who writes, As a stakeholder in UPS, I'm a driver and a shareholder. How concerned should I be for my career and long-term value of my shares regarding Amazon's new approach to jumping into the delivery space? I recently finished reading the book The Everything Store, and it seems like nothing is out of Amazon's reach. Thank you, and keep up the good work. Uh, Great question, and yes, for anyone who's read The Everything Store, the profile of Jeff Bezos and how he has grown Amazon, Matty, uh, no surprise that uh, it's one more industry that they're looking into the delivery space. Well, and and Jay's right on. I mean, before I read the Everything Store, I, I really thought there were some there were some markets, some industries that Amazon really just probably wouldn't get into. And one of those is shipping. I mean, it's it's very capital intensive, as Jay probably knows, very labor intensive. Uh, and but I, I I agree. I I tend to agree. I don't think there's anything out of Jeff Bezos's reach. Uh, they've made a significant investments. Kind of getting into that uh, zone, and I know Jeff's probably got some stats behind that. But uh, I don't think Jay has to worry about his job anytime soon. Although maybe at some point he might be working for Amazon. Not totally out of the question. Yeah, and uh, no single customer accounts for up to ten percent of, uh, or more than ten percent of UPS's uh, revenue. For for one, and two, only about forty percent of of their revenue as a whole is from the U.S. So it and to what you said, Maddie, too. If Amazon's really going to seriously get into this, it's going to take them years to build it out oh. and to do it. And Amazon already uses all kinds of different uh, delivery services. So 
know. Jay, you're you're in good you're in good shape. Yeah, you should be fine. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar, and we'll bring in our man Steve Breda from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Jeff Fisher, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, I don't know. I, I like to say this is being flexible, but it could be just plain being stupid. <laughs> So I usually buy, as you know, Chris, things like Visa or Gilead or things that are really compounding cash flow for many, many years. But American Airlines is what I'm looking at Whoa. again. Ticker is AAL. I looked at the airline industry about a year ago and just found that I think it has really changed. I think the profits may be here to stay. And so these shares look really cheap. They're at about five times earnings, and they should have, just like Southwest, record results this year. Uh, once again, they don't hedge their fuel costs at all, so they're really enjoying these low prices. That said, the market has only sent it lower in the year that I've been following it, and uh, the market needs to believe that American Airlines can stay profitable for the long term. Steve, question about American Airlines? Jeff, you travel quite a bit. Do you actually enjoy flying? I hate it. It's, it's becoming <laughs> worse. Every year, it seems like it's getting worse, and I look at the airlines, and I, I just don't Feel the love. You know, I had an experience on American recently that made me not want to fly. But whenever I fly Southwest, it, I'm, I'm happy to. And I, I, I get a lot done on a, on an airplane. I kind of love the isolation of, well, you have Wi-Fi, but <laughs> but you're on a plane, you must, you, you can't get up and move around. So I get a lot done on planes. I like flying. I actually thought about flying just to get some work done. <laughs> Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, it's been an on-again, off-again relationship with this one. I think it's turning to on-again. It is Panera. Uh, the stock has been stuck kind of in neutral here the past couple of years, but I think that's for good reason. We've been a bit critical of their uh, sort of in-store experience and throughput and how that's sort of shaken through the numbers. But, you know, Maddie and I were talking about this the other day, and we have that one across the street from, from us now here at Full HQ that is very convenient, and it has the uh, you can order on the computers there, and you don't really have to do a whole heck of a lot. It seems like they get the orders right. You don't have to talk to anyone; just yeah. get, get your food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so it's, it's it's a very convenient service, I think. And uh, it just has impressed me that maybe that Panera 2.0 initiative is starting to take hold here. So this is one I think that I'm going to start looking at for MDP a little bit more closely. And the ticker? Uh, PNRA. Steve. How do you categorize Panera? It just seems like a place that sells a bunch of different kinds of food, sort of. <laughs> bread. There's nothing oh, oh. unique. It's a bread. They've got coffee. It's, some bread. It's, bread it's kind of like Starbucks's third place, but not quite. I think that's a good question you asked there, Steve. It, it's sort of an identity thing, and maybe, maybe they still have got to work on that. Maddie, One I mentioned earlier, Activision Blizzard. You've got a nice uh, the ticker's ATVI, biggest video game publisher on the planet. You've got a nice little 10% pullback here. I just think video games are, are getting ever more popular. There's more platforms. Platforms. No one does it better than Activision. Esports is also going to be huge. There's some studies suggesting it's more popular than the NBA right now, which is hard to fathom, and Activision's a big play on that as well. Steve? Are you ever too old to play video games? No, because I am 36 <laughs> and I still play many hours of video games and intend to for many, many decades. <laughs> Steve, three interesting companies. You got one you want to put on your watch list? I would have to go with Activision because I just can't do American Airlines and Panera. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff Fisher, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, Chris. You. Check out Supernova Radio. Fool.com for more details on our Supernova service. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Brodo. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week.